nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Tom Carpenter, head of Hanford Challenge, about the true challenges we face at Washington State's nuclear disaster area, which is one of the ten most polluted places on the planet. Today is Tuesday, January 31st, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective, delivered by Nuclear Hot Seat European correspondent Sean McGee. We'll begin this week's reports going to America, and Governor Cuomo has clearly announced that he will be extending the lives of three nuclear reactors in New York State and uh, that he'll be spending $360 million for 11 new large-scale projects to do with renewables. So uh, this is quite an interesting story. I believe that one of the nuclear reactors will be being closed down as well. On January the 24th, the Trump administration eased permit restrictions for the oil pipelines around America. But what a lot of people don't realise is that on January the 23rd, the House of Representatives pushed through a series of changes in the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And the bills mean that the courts will have to rethink how they treat the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission decisions to give more flexibility to new nuclear plants. Now, basically what this means, there was two bills that were passed by a voice vote, and they're meant to help consumers in the power industry and to help the development of new nuclear reactor technologies. One of the aftershots of this is that the, oil, the energy companies will be able to charge customers for new nuclear bills. And this is likely because investments in nuclear are very low uh, and using customer bills for the future, pushing them up, will allow new nuclear power plants and technologies to be pushed through. So this is quite an interesting article and it comes from uh, Law 380. It was not reported at all, as far as I could find out, in the mainstream media. When we look at Europe, we are seeing a larger increase in renewable energy use. The European Commission is at the moment deciding whether to put a tariff on Chinese solar panels. So what we're hoping to see will be the easing of any tariffs, allowing solar energy to be able to be used more widespread in Europe and continuing its very large renewable increase. One exception to European renewable growth are the projects in Poland. 
Now, Poland uses coal mainly for its energy uh, needs, and a recent statement by a Dr. Biriol highlighted the recent changes in siting regulations and reductions in support mechanisms for renewable energy, they claimed, uh, which have created uncertainty and have had negative implications for investor confidence. And he said the future of renewable energy in Poland looks uncertain. In the same report, he mentions that uh, nuclear may be used sometime in the future, although they have no plans. In fact, actually, it is unlikely that Poland will be using nuclear. So maybe its only choice will be renewable energy market, where we are seeing prices crashing down. One of the largest pushes for nuclear reactors in Europe is coming from Hungary and the Czech Republic. And, of course, the European Commission is challenging under various clauses uh, to do with European uh, tender rule. And we're also going to probably see that the Czech Republic will have uh, similar issues, uh, renewables being so cheap. The Russian Rosatom is basically offering large incentives, and they are actually nearly paying for the reactors. So we'll have to see how this develops uh, in the future. Now, obviously, the big news this week is the Shiba Corporation, who have said that they're not going to start uh, building any more nuclear reactors because of the massive write-downs they've suffered, and their their chairman has been uh, ex- is expected to resign. And the, this all happened on Saturday, but during the course of the week, we've been hearing lots of issues. The company's decision to cease taking orders effectively from Saturday marks its withdrawal from the nuclear plant construction business. This withdrawal from construction will probably affect American reactors, more side in the UK, and uh, we have yet to see the full problems that will occur for the nuclear industry from this massive crash in Toshiba's profits. And while Toshiba is obviously going to have to withdraw from NewGen, of which it has a 60% share, and this is to do with the Moorside nuclear reactor plans, we are also noticing that in Scotland they have massive renewable expansion. One little issue that came up from a Science Direct report, it said that Scotland's relative success in facilitating rapid expansion and onshore wind is attributed to a more enduring and cohesive policy community around renewable energy than is found in Northern Ireland and Wales. And it says this excess has been adversely affected by fragmenting policy networks around renewables at the national UK level. And of course the UK are trying to push nuclear and gas. Fortunately, the renewables are so uh, investor-friendly that we're seeing the growth of renewables even in the UK. And hopefully the government will have to backtrack on its nuclear plans for Sizewell C construction as well. Now, the report that came out uh, concerning the Sizewell C nuclear power plant, EDF forgot to mention that uh, 600,000 metres cubed a year of mains water are going to be needed for this plant to keep it cool. Now, the IPCC report, which came out, says that the UK will be suffering severe drought in the coming decades, and that water will be needed for drinking and food production. And fracking is also an issue. The UK wants to promote that, 
but the groundwater, they won't have enough of it to actually be able to use for fracking. And, of course, there's a risk of pollution from uh, fracking in the groundwater supplies. So the UK is going to be suffering from serious issues with its energy policy. And also concerning UK nuclear investment in technologies, uh, such as the Oxford-based fusion research, we're seeing that the UK government has asked to withdraw from Euratom as part of its Brexit negotiations. Now, Euratom is the treaty that Europe has to do with nuclear bills, and it covers safety and design issues and many other, all aspects of the nuclear process. Now, what's happening with this, where we're seeing, is that in Europe, regulations for nuclear are actually being ramped up, and there are many issues which I'll leave a link to, and you can read. But the bottom line is, is that the nuclear industry itself had asked the government prior to this uh, decision that they tried to stay in Euratom, but the government has said no. Now, obviously, there's been many challenges to Euratom on a financial basis, and we're seeing that in Hungary. But what we're seeing in the UK is this pulling away from, even with all these scientists and nuclear corporations asking for the UK government to stay in. Now, it's a very odd decision, this, for the UK, and it will impede further the nuclear bills for the plans for the future because of delays, because they have to restructure various treaties. Now, the only reason we could think of why they would do this is because of the other challenge to Euratom, which is to do with the health challenge, which has been sponsored by Chris Busby, and the whole campaign has been developed by Chris Busby. And he's saying that because of new science that's coming out to do with health effects, we're seeing that the Euratom is going to be heavily challenged, and we think that the UK are aware of this, and maybe by being pushed by the Ministry of Defence, who have been trying to defend the British nuclear test veterans, as just one case in point, that they will be more liable for uh, health effects from their nuclear tests and their contaminated sites all around uh, the UK. So this is the only thing that makes sense as to why the UK is withdrawing from Euratom. And in another blow to the UK, Steve Holliday, who is the ex-National Grid CEO, he has said that there will be no need for large centralised nuclear or fossil fuel generation in the future, and that the UK has more than enough capacity to meet its demands. Now, as we're seeing problems with Toshiba, where the company is nearly falling apart, and we have Mitsubishi trying to sue Toshiba for $1 billion, we are seeing that Japan, over the last two years, has seen thermal coal imports fall from a record high. Uh, LNG purchases are down for the second year. And we're seeing a 30% less use in uh, fossil fuels in Japan. And this is brought on by the increase in solar energy use in Japan. And I'll link to reports that show uh, all this information. Now, one of the reports says that it might be due to the nuclear startups, but uh, over the last two years, 
Japan has made nearly zero, a very small, small percentage in uh, nuclear energy because of problems with their restart program. We'll have to see how this goes in the future. Now, like the UK, who has been stopping renewables in favour of fossil fuel and nuclear, Japan has also been using various strategies to stop the renewable energy. But the investors are obviously still putting their money into these projects and uh, Japan has actually managed to reach its 20-year plan to increase uh, the renewable section and they've done it in half the time, in 10 years. I think we'll be looking at uh, even larger increases in the future, according to reports in Japan in renewables, and we're going to be seeing uh, more coal plants shutting down and a lesser need for LNG gas. Sticking with Japan, on January the 20th, Satoru Katsunu, who is the head of the uh, electrical producing corporation, uh, has said that he will be looking at having a great year, and he was very vague, but he's looking at trying to restart nuclear power plants. Uh, he didn't mention anything about renewable in his speech at all, and will be keeping an eye on uh, what's happening there. It's interesting that the nuclear industry is trying to really promote the sort of nuclear ticket and we're seeing a huge increase in propaganda to promote how well Fukushima is reviving from the Fukushima nuclear disaster of 2011. Now obviously there's been major reports come out from uh, Professor Tsuda who did the Fukushima thyroid study, uh, epidemiological study. Now, he's also brought out another report with his colleagues, uh, which is the connection between soil contamination in Japan's Fukushima prefecture and disease frequency. And he's noticed that there is a, a higher rate of disease over the last few years uh, to do with influenza and norovirus in Japan. And obviously he's asking for more studies to be done, but so it does suggest a potential association between decreased immunity and irradiation because of the soil irradiation. And obviously, as I said, he needs further studies on immunity in these epidemic-prone areas. Also in a meeting in Fukushima Prefecture, the uh, Reconstruction Minister, Mashari Imamura, has uh, on the 28th uh, said that the Fukushima prefecture reconstruction is going absolutely fantastically and they're coming towards the end of it. However, officials in the actual uh, meeting talked to the press afterwards and they said uh, various things. Now, one of the ministers uh, uh, talking to the press afterwards said that some regions in the designation evacuation zones are not even at the starting line, so, and this was said by uh, Uchubori-san. Even in the areas where the designation is already lifted, recovery has only just begun. Now, finally, we'll go to Israel, and it's coming up to 31 years since Mordecai Vonunu was dramatically kidnapped in Italy for his part in letting the world know about Israeli nuclear bomb activities. Uh, even though this information was known about by the UK and the USA at the very least. Since then, groups like the IEA have tried to discover what, about the nuclear bomb program, but Israel will not cooperate on this issue at all. 
and recent calls for Israeli transparency on this issue are underway by only alternative media. The IAEA itself is working with Israel on its so-called peaceful nuclear program, but more recently there was a push by various countries, and I'll list those in a minute. Now, Mordecai was in court on Monday, and he basically turned around afterwards and he says, Nothing changes. Today, the court heard my appeal, asking the three judges to intervene to allow me to leave the country. The Israeli government, via its lawyers, repeated the same accusations that it has for the last 30 years, saying that he is a security risk for them because of all the nuclear secrets from 35 years ago. The court will be making its decision in the coming weeks. And there's no change as I continue to wait for freedom now, he said. So, from 1986 to 2017, Mordecai Vanunu has been imprisoned or under house arrest. He has a wife in Norway. He wants to go and live with her. And at the end of the day, the Israeli government is not sort of complying but we'll be uh, looking at this in the next few weeks and getting back to you on, the, on his situation, and we can only just wish him the uh, very best of luck. On the 18th of September 2015, a resolution calling for the inspection of Israeli nuclear sites was defeated at the IAEA General Conference. Um, so Tel Aviv, which led an intensive campaign against the Arab state's proposal, hailing the results uh, of the vote as a great victory, uh, in the international arena. The International Atomic en Energy Agency, the IAEA, General Conference, voted uh, 61, 4 and 43 against the resolution put forward by Egypt, backed by Turkey, Syria, Iran, Libya and Iraq, as well as Russia, China and South Africa. The resolution called for the international monitoring of the Israeli nuclear reactor in Demona, which is suspected of developing fissile material for Israel's alleged nuclear arsenal that poses a permanent threat to peace and security in the region. Israel long, Israel's long-term allies, such as the US, uh, some EU members, Australia, Japan, South Korea and Canada, voted against the motion calling for the nuclear inspection. Tel Aviv and pro-Israel states worked endlessly behind the scenes to sway the votes in Israel in favour of the subject of Israel's nuclear capabilities ahead of the IAEA vote. Uh, that was a report from RT News. And lastly, we'll come to Chris Busby. And he's put an article up in, in RT and also it will be in The Ecologist. And looking at the doomsday clock claims... He said that the real doomsday clock passed midnight long ago. And he's basically referring to the uh, contamination of the planet, the slow and inevitable com contamination of the planet from nuclear sources, whether they be nuclear weapons or nuclear power stations or reprocessing plants or uh, the burial of waste. And so we'll link to that article as well for you to uh, peruse. That was Nuclear Hot Seat's European correspondent, Sean McGee. We'll have our featured interview in just a moment, but first, I know that if you're listening to Nuclear Hot Seat, you are the kind of person who cares about our world and have the compassion to want to pass it along to future generations in tolerably good condition. 
That's what we believe in as well. So help us spread the word, will you? Show your support for Nuclear Hot Seat's verifiable nuclear news, interviews, and support for our activists. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and know that whatever you can do to help us, it's generous for you to share your hard-working money with us, and we are grateful. The Hanford site in southeastern Washington state is one of the ten most polluted places in the world. How did it get that way? And what's being done about it? Today's interviewee, Tom Carpenter of Hanford Challenge, fills you in on a not-so-pretty picture. Tom Carpenter of Hanford Challenge, thank you so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Let's start out with a little bit about your background so we know who we're talking to, to find out your work in the past and how you got involved in nuclear issues. Currently, I'm the executive director of an organization called Hanford Challenge. Hanford is a nuclear site in southeastern Washington and was one of the seminal Cold War facilities. It actually made the materials for the plutonium in the first nuclear bomb in the Trinity Desert, and also the plutonium that was used in the Nagasaki bomb dropped on Japan. So its genesis was really World War II, but then went on to become the primary plutonium producer for the uh, Cold War. So that left a huge legacy mess. So our group oversees that, the cleanup there. My work started, though, back in the late 1970s. And That was as an anti-nuclear activist challenging the opening of a nuclear plant in Cincinnati called Zimmer. I guess my trajectory there was being, you know, fairly traditional in my activism by putting together uh, demonstrations, buying stock, and the company having stockholder resolutions, organizing, talking to PTAs, unions, whoever we could get to listen to us. But workers started coming to our door from the plant and saying, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with you guys, but you should know there's some safety issues that aren't being addressed at this site. And then Three Mile Island happened in 1979, and we were about a year and a half old at that point, and the issue just exploded. And even workers started to get very, very concerned about safety issues and the site. So we started working closely with them and seeking help. And eventually I found help with a a national group called Government Accountability Project that really taught me how to work with insiders in the nuclear industry. I went to law school, became a lawyer in 1986, graduated from Antioch School of Law, and uh, became the nuclear program oversight director for Government Accountability Project and worked with them up until uh, 2007. When I split off and founded Hanford Challenge. And that was simply because having overseen the nuclear industry, commercial and military, as well as in Russia a little bit, that really was, it took me out traveling a lot. It took a lot of focus and time. And Hanford for me was an increasing part of my oversight responsibility. And I decided that Hanford would be it. So I decided that It was time for me to leave uh, this national organization. I was living out here in Seattle at that point and founded Hanford Challenge just to focus on the most contaminated nuclear site in the United States. What are some of the activities and actions that have been taken by Hanford Challenge through the years? I think most notably is our representation of well over 100 
nuclear whistleblowers at the site. Some of their disclosures went to safety issues and environmental issues. Sometimes they were fraud and abuse, mismanagement. Recently, like in the past five years, we've been working with some fairly high-level technical managers at the waste treatment plant, which is supposed to be handling the waste. That's the high-level nuclear waste that are stored in the underground storage tanks at the Hanford site. Our strategy is both to provide a legal strategy for these whistleblowers who get often get fired or into employment trouble, as well as then make sure their information is disclosed. So we help package the information in a way that we think the public will understand, that the media would understand, that the Congress would understand. A lot of these people are engineers. They're not necessarily great communicators. And so you have to kind of talk them down, right? And say, well, what does that really mean? And break it down and actually prep them for interviews with the press. So we're basically only taking clients and helping people that want to make disclosures. They want to make sure, I mean, the whole reason they're risking their career is they're worried about some environmental or safety issue. It offends their sense of professional ethics and responsibility to the community. And they take the step knowing, and you know, we, we tell them up front, you're going to lose your career. That is a likely outcome for a lot of people. So we've done a lot of that kind of representation. We helped establish and have served on an advisory board at the Hanford site that advises the government, both U.S. and the Department of Energy, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the state of Washington on the cleanup. So that's a 32-member board and we're one of the seats. We also helped establish and participate in another board that was a mediation board for Hanford workers that tried to get early in on the situation when they made a disclosure and they were heading toward getting fired because of their disclosure that we could intervene through this council that ended up being called the Hanford Concerns Council. The companies that had been sued by us were anxious for an alternative to being sued and losing and paying out attorney's fees. We weren't that happy about people always just being on the outside as a result of their raising internal concerns. So we were looking for an alternative to that, and this was that alternative. It was a way to both resolve the issue that these people were raising with the company's help and protect these people's livelihoods. So a lot of folks at the Hanford site, and we helped well over 150 people, most of their coworkers don't even know that they utilized, you know, because it's a confidential thing. Well, that was recently killed by a, a Department of Energy that's very unhappy with us right now. And they're unhappy with us because we also bring lawsuits. We brought this lawsuit on behalf of workers in an environmental law that would force the Hanford management to protect workers from exposure to chemical vapors as they work around these high-level nuclear waste tanks. For many decades now, workers have been experiencing illnesses and injuries and serious problems from exposure and breathing in these chemical vapors coming out of these underground nuclear waste tanks. And so we filed this lawsuit along with a union at the Hanford site, the Pipefitters Union, Local 598, and the Attorney General for the state of Washington, who we recruited to get involved in this. And so there are actually two different complaints in federal court which are still pending and we're still fighting that lawsuit. So those are the kind of things that we've been doing. Let's back this up. 
give us a context for what the Hanford site is and why it's so bad. Okay. We'll start with the fact that Hanford is the most contaminated facility in the United States and one of the top 10 in the world. It's up there with uh, Chernobyl, with Mayak, with Fukushima, just in terms of actual inventory of radionuclides and chemical contamination. The worst of that is in the high-level waste. Hanford has two-thirds of the nation's high-level nuclear waste, and this is about 56 million gallons and hundreds of millions of curies of radioactivity in these tanks. A lot of it's strontium-90 and cesium-137. Just to give the listener a perspective on what a curie is, we measure permissible doses, which is itself a misnomer, okay, but, you know, acceptable doses in the trillions of a curie, in the trillions of a single curie for some of these radionuclides, like strontium-90. The acceptable level is seven trillionths of a curie in a liter of water. So we um, should really put acceptable in quotes there as a bureaucratic designation as opposed to anything that is genuinely acceptable in terms of human life and safety. And in fact, uh, EPA recently lowered, substantially lowered the so-called acceptable dose. But we all know that from science knows that there is no acceptable dose, that every Radiation exposure, whether it's natural or man-made, carries with it an elevated risk of contracting cancer, a mutation, an illness of some kind down the road, depending on people's genetic makeup and, and everything else. So it's not a good idea to be increasing the radiation risks out there by producing these kind of inventories. And Hanford is the biggest in the United States. Now, the trick is that now, it's not only the high-level nuclear waste stored in these underground nuclear waste tanks. And for clarity's sake, yep. describe what the quote-unquote safety measures are in these underground tanks. They're not safe, right? So we'll just start with they were built, most of the tanks were built in the 50s and early 60s. They were built to have a 20-year life. Some were built in the late 40s. So all those early tanks... They should not be in use at all. My understanding is that they have only two layers of metal between whatever the toxic radioactive material is and the outside, the ground itself. Is that well, accurate? Well, no. Actually, 149 of the 177 tanks are single-shell tanks. So they have one shell. I mean, that's not how we build tanks anymore. Now they're at least double-shelled. They have 28 double-shell tanks at the site. So those are the newer tanks. Those were built to last 40 years. We're at the end of our engineered design life for those, too, because they were built in the 1980s, 70s and 80s. And one of those has already failed, the double-shell tank. And um about a half of the single-shell tanks have failed. And what does that mean? It means they've leaked. So how much have they leaked? They've leaked at least a million and probably more like six to eight million gallons of high-level nuclear waste in liquid form to the soils beneath the tank. What's in the soils? Well, beneath the soil, about 150 feet below the soil is the aquifer. This is the underground groundwater that communicates with the Columbia River. 
The Columbia River is, of course, the second most powerful river in the United States. It's the lifeblood of uh, the Pacific Northwest region. It's got a lot of salmon in it. It's relied upon for irrigation. Portland relies on it for drinking water, Hood River, a lot of other communities downstream. There's a lot at stake when you start polluting that river, and it is polluted. Hanford's operations already made the Columbia River the most radioactive river in the world as it was dumping reactor effluent. You know, I was mentioning curies earlier and talking about millions, billions, and trillions of a curie. At the height of their pollution, Hanford was dumping up to 24,000 curies a day, per day, into the Columbia River. They were wiping out the salmon stocks and the wild runs of salmon. They were, it was so radioactive that, you know, their internal studies indicated that if you were a hunter out there and shot a duck to eat, and a lot of Native Americans, that's how they subsist, and that's how they did subsist, that eating the breast of that duck would give you a lifetime radiation dose for the times. Now, these days, it would be probably higher than that. You know, it would be a much higher unacceptable dose. How aware is the general public of this level of risk? It's one thing to say Hanford is dangerous. Do they know the specifics of the dangers to them? No. And I also want to hasten to say that those days of dumping in the river are over. So now the danger really is lying in the silt of the river, behind the dams, you know, in the river itself. If you go take a water sample from the river today, you'll find pretty low levels of radiation. So the risk is really a future risk at this point, as 99% of Hanford's radioactivity is still on land. And a lot of it has leaked into the soil. In fact, they deliberately used the soil as a storage media. They've got some 42 mile linear miles of trenches that are 20 feet deep, 15 feet across, that are in these little parks that they've got out there. Who knows what's in them, right? There's all kind of waste buried in boxes and glass jars or simply dumped into the trench. A lot of trenches were liquid waste disposal trenches. So at one point, Hanford put together an estimate of how many gallons of contaminated liquids they actually dumped to the soil at the site. And they came up with this estimate of 444 billion, billion gallons. It's just phenomenal. Now, since that time, the Department of Ecology for the state of Washington claims that it's over a trillion gallons. Who knows what the number is? I think their record keeping was pretty bad. Let's just say it's a lot. It's a lot more than anybody would want. Exactly. And what is the radionuclide and chemical content of all of that? Anybody's guess. So that's what we're looking at. When I say it's the most contaminated site in the United States, and I tell engineers these quantities, right, people knowing what they know about chemicals and nuclear, their jaws drop. You know, if you were to decide to clean up Hanford, there's no storage place, right, that could fit all that contaminated media. It's an underground ocean of contaminants in the groundwater alone. Now, the soil is dripping into the groundwater, recontaminating it. But the high-level waste that's leaked in, that will eventually all arrive at the groundwater at some point and go to the river. So that's the challenge that we have ahead of us is emptying those tanks of all their contents of radiation and chemicals, processing or treating that waste in some fashion 
so that it's dry and not available to the environment, store that deep underground somewhere, treat it in a treated fashion so that it doesn't communicate with our ecosystem anymore, which is anybody's guess whether or not we can accomplish that. What has been tried thus far in terms of treating this or rendering it neutral in some way, and what has gone wrong along the way? Science has not figured out how to render it neutral. Basically, radiation has to decay away unless you bombard it with neutron, which creates more radioactivity. So, I mean, that's, that's an idea. Bill Gates, among others, is pursuing that idea, but every engineer scientist that looks at it goes, this, this ain't working, this isn't going to work. So maybe in 100 years, someone will figure something out, or 50 years, but right now what we've got is the best method is isolation. So collect it, treat it so that it's in a dry form. What Hanford is pursuing and what other sites have pursued is vitrification, which means putting this stuff into glass. And the beauty of that process is they use the waste product, if done right, to help form the glass. So it's not like taking a marble and putting glass around it, like, you know, in a souvenir shop, but it becomes part of the glass matrix. So even when the glass fails, which it will, it will slump to the floor, hopefully, of a deep under, underground repository below the groundwater table and still just not go anywhere. Why would it, right? So eventually all of it will fail. Nothing can contain something this long. And, you know, what? how long, of course, is the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even some radionuclides are dangerous for millions and millions of years. So that's our challenge is collecting that stuff up and the worst of the worst anyway, and trying to treat it and then get it buried somewhere. The U.S. government has been attempting to build a vitrification facility at Hanford, and this has been going on for a very long time. They just announced that it's going to cost an additional $4.5 billion, with a B, Mm -hmm. raising the price tag to $16.8 billion that they can foresee, and there's no guarantee that this is going to be in place and effective before 2036. I had to check that number because it's just too (laughs) ridiculous. What are we facing here? Is there anything that can be done in the interim? Or are we just going to keep throwing billions of dollars at some project that may or may not end up being built to a point where it can be used? Congress has an investigative arm called the GAO, which is now the Government Accountability Office. They're big critics of Hanford. They've come out to the Hanford site many, many times and said, wow, this place is messed. Okay, but they use technical jargon. So their last report on this was in the summer of 2015. And at that point, they calculated that Hanford, using our taxpayer money, by the way, had spent $19 billion, $19 billion up to that point, to attempt to treat Hanford's high-level nuclear waste. Now, that comes in the form of four or five attempts, depending on, on how you count, to build a bit plant, to design it, to build it and to get it into operations. And as you pointed out, that is not going well. So the latest iteration basically started in 2012. They had built a lot of the facility up to that point until senior scientists and engineers put their whole careers on the line. These were incredibly technically qualified people. They included nuclear engineers, 
chemical engineers, chief scientists, chief engineers, et cetera, people with vast experience whose job it was to identify and fix these problems. And the companies out there were very anxious to get it done. And so they took shortcuts. You know, they used the wrong quality assurance protocols. Frankly, they cheated and came up with a design and a construction that is at best suspect, right? So they went public, they got fired. Who is the they? These engineers and scientists, including Walt Tanisaitis, who was the research and technology manager, Donna Bushy, who was the nuclear safety manager, Gary Brunson, who worked for the Department of Energy, and he was the chief engineer for the waste treatment plant. Those were three of the top technical people. And then there's chief scientist for the DOE, also blew the whistle, named Don Alexander, on the design problems out there, which also were safety issues. So, you know, just to give you a taste of some of these safety issues, in this waste treatment plant, you know, if you don't mix the waste sufficiently, then plutonium as a particle, very heavy, would drop to the floor of the mixers and have a risk of going critical, which is a bad day if you're not planning for this. And this facility is not designed to handle a nuclear criticality. It releases neutron heat and causes all kinds of untoward side effects. It can lead to explosions, et cetera. And speaking of explosions, there's also this effect where plutonium sends out trillions of alpha particles a second. And these alpha particles tend to break apart the water molecule, which is hydrogen and oxygen. So now you've got hydrogen gas floating around in the waste, in the headspace. It wasn't designed for that. They don't have a way to evacuate the hydrogen from this tank. It's very radioactive, by the way. So these tanks were now little time bombs that could go critical, nuclear criticality, and have a hydrogen gas explosion or ignition. You can't contain those. You know, they got to go somewhere. Again, uh, the joke is that's a bad day. I think that's the ultimate definition of a bad day. We're talking a three-state, you know, at least impact where millions of curies of radioactivity goes airborne, affects Spokane, Idaho, Oregon, Canada, who knows how big the plume gets, you know, the wind conditions, everything else. We, we've seen it, right? We know what it looks like from Chernobyl, from Fukushima, from Salafield, from Mayak, all these other accidents that have happened out there. It would be our turn. So getting back to the contractors who are taking shortcuts. Right. These people are their PhDs, they're high-level managers, they're highly compensated. Walt was marched out of the facility after he put some 50 safety issues on the table. He was asked to do so. They said, "What's? are we ready to transition and close the design? He goes, well, no. Here's all these unresolved technical issues, and I can't put my name on it, right? And the next day, there were people waiting for him at the office. They said, give us your badge, your phone, and you're fired. You're out. He says, why? They said, the president has decided you're out, the president of the company for Bechtel at this point. And he goes, but why? Well, ask him. They didn't have a reason to offer him, but he was taken out of there. His company put him in a basement in their downtown office in Richland and ignored him for years. Like So he was there for two and a half years in a basement office with no supervisor, no duties. He was surrounded by copiers. He was forgotten. Meanwhile, he's testifying 
We're helping him. He came to us. We're helping him get his word out there, testifying before agencies, before the Senate, going to USA Today newspaper. He was interviewed on Rachel Maddow. He was in international news, what happened to this guy and his allegations. And then Donna Bushy also stepped forward in support of Walt, but with her own issues, and Gary Brunson, the chief engineer, they all had different ways that this plant was defective and constructed. And eventually we got through, and the Secretary of Energy, a guy named Stephen Chu at the time, from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, Nobel Prize winner, he says, oh, I can fix this. So he literally flies out to the Hanford site, holds several weeks of meetings, and takes a tour of the facility with Gary Brunson and his team. And he goes, what's really going on here? Because I don't like what I'm seeing. They fill him in. He pulls the plug on the whole thing. What do you mean by pulls the plug? He pulls the plug on the waste treatment plant design and construction and halts it, suspends it, and says, you're not ready. We're not going to spend another nickel on this site until you've got a better plan, Hanford, to come up to address these problems. Well, that was 2012, and here we are now in 2017, and Hanford has come around with a proposal to do a workaround and not use these mixing tanks, but to have a pre-pretreatment facility and only vitrify low-activity waste and not the high-level waste stuff, and they're hoping to open that and hoping to open that in 2022. No way. They haven't even started building the thing yet. They don't, they don't think they have an approved design. I mean, it's not how it works in the nuclear industry, right? It takes eight years, 10 years to build anything and get it certified and permitted and checked out. And there's a lot of people watching this. So anyway, there's and, more unrealistic plans going on here. And there's recently been a settlement in a fraud case in right. connection with this as well. Talk to us about that. Well, the same people I just mentioned, Walt Tanisitis, Donna Bushy, and Gary Brunson, senior managers, scientists, technicians, realized that the government was being ripped off. There were promises that the work would be conducted in a way that was consistent with the nuclear safety laws. It's called quality assurance, that the design was going to meet codes that the construction was going to occur in a certain way with qualified individuals, et cetera. They also found out that the government was compensating the companies, allegedly for lobbying, to the tune of millions of dollars. So we taxpayer was paying these companies to lobby Congress so that they could get a better deal. And there's there's a law against that, right? So I, one would hope somebody should actually pay attention to the law, but go ahead. So they brought what's called a false claims act case, and this allows anyone with unique information to file a case with the district court. It's secret. It's filed under seal, so that the Department of Justice can review that claim and decide whether or not they might intervene and take over the case. What's in it for the workers who bring out these kind of claims is they're entitled to a portion of whatever the government recovers. So that can be 10% or up to 30%. So if the government recovers 100 million bucks, you might get as much as 20 to 30 million of that. And your lawyers could get their attorney fees. Well, this incentivizes people to come forward with fraud against the government 
the government gets the bulk of the benefit from that and gets the money paid back. So the Department of Justice decided it was going to intervene, and Bechtel and URS, now AECOM, are the companies in charge of designing and building the waste treatment plant at the Hanford site, decided to settle the case. Now, they did so by not admitting guilt and paying $125 million. So that's why I said earlier, allegedly this and allegedly that. However, one wonders, wow, $125 million is not nuisance pay, right? It's not, oh, we'll make this little thing go away. So there's some measure of accountability that happened there. I'm very happy that these workers, these employees, who really gave up their careers, got hammered, lost bonuses, lost pay, et cetera, are getting some compensation. I don't know what that compensation is yet. They don't either, but they are entitled to some cut of that. And I hope that it is a message that's sent to other workers at the site to go out and blow the whistle on fraud that's happening at the site. It's good for the taxpayer. In this case, these were nuclear safety violations. And if this plan had gone ahead as designed and was built, then the Pacific Northwest would have been at serious risk of being contaminated due to an accident or an explosion or a fire or something like that at the site. So from my perspective, we owe these people a debt of gratitude, number one. And number two is, why the hell are we paying companies like Bechtel and AECOM money to screw this thing up over and over and over again? And mismanagement is at the heart of this there's a lot of indications that they are acting in a very self-serving way. They're just ripping off the taxpayer from what I can tell, but yet they stay employed as the contractor out there. So it's very weird. With the change of administration that we are facing, we're talking right now the week before that's taking place. It will have happened by the time this interview airs. But with that change taking place, what, if any, change do you anticipate happening in the way Hanford is being treated and dealt with by the government? That's a huge question that everyone's asking themselves out here at Hanford. Members, employees at the Department of Energy are wondering whether or not they have jobs now. You know, the Trump administration was asking for the names of employees who worked on climate change, who worked on nuclear proliferation. They've demanded the resignation of the head of the nuclear part of the agency on the first day. So that was included. That's not just for the diplomats who were asked to step down as of the first day. This really is verifiable that he's asked for the head of the nuclear arm of the EPA to step down as well. It's for the Department of Energy. So it's the head of what's called the National Nuclear Safety Security Administration, NNSA, and they're in charge of the nuclear weapons in the agency. There were some questions as to whether that was a legitimate story or not when it first came out. So thank you for that confirmation. So maybe they'll change their minds, of course, because they can and Trump does a lot. But we know that the person that Trump wants to run this agency is a guy named Rick Perry. I think we're familiar with Rick Perry. Um, So he's got a degree in like animal husbandry or something, was a governor of Texas, ran for president, kind of distinguished himself by in a presidential debate at one point by saying that he would get rid of three agencies. The Department of Commerce was one of them. And 
I think HUD was another, I'm not sure. But uh, then he said, I can't remember the third one. And it was Department of Energy. And he was reminded of it. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. So he's going to now be in charge of that, which I, I just take as a perverted sense of humor on Donald Trump's part. It's like, why would you have a guy who wanted to abolish this agency and couldn't even remember the name of it take over that agency, except for bad purposes? I, I worry about that. So I worry that the cleanup, which is expensive, which is troublesome, you know, we're big critics of it. Others are big critics of it. That it won't get better, that it might get defunded. That one of the big problems with this agency, the Department of Energy, is a lack of transparency and a lack of accountability and a lack of good management. They don't manage their contractors very well. So we're not making progress on the cleanup like we should be. Now, to be fair, some progress is being made. It's not all grim news out there. I think this uh, the treatment of high-level waste is, is a very sore point. However, there's been some groundwater cleanup that's been notable. They have cocooned a lot of the reactors, taking care of some of the issues out there, all of which will be for naught if they don't clean up the tank waste. And I say that because all of that waste that's escaped from the tanks already or could escape or will escape in the future will go through the ground and recontaminate the groundwater and the river, et cetera. So you can't stop now. So that's our concern is that even with legally binding cleanup agreements in place, you wonder, is there a commitment? Or is this just going to be seen as by the administration, the new administration as a, a handy place to cut? Because who wants to pay all that money every year for a failed cleanup? So that's how they might frame it. Obviously, there's pushback going on already that they not do that, and we'll be a voice in that chorus, because even though we have severe heartburn with the management of the site, et cetera, we don't want to see the money for the cleanup go away. It's, it's a huge responsibility we have as humans in this generation for future generations to assure that people are not being affected by this and creating new victims into the future from Hanford's contamination and, and our past misdeeds there. If people wish to learn more about Hanford Challenge and your work, especially people in the Pacific Northwest, where can they go to get that information? Well, if you can remember our name, you know, you can Google us, Hanford Challenge, or you can just string that all together in one word, Hanford Challenge, and then put .org on the end, and that'll take you to the website. There's lots of news articles out there you can go and scope. There is a Hanford.gov website, which is Hanford's official website, which is slowly getting better over time. So there are a lot of uh, resources out there. Uh, we welcome volunteers. We welcome inquiries. You can sign up for updates on our website just by clicking, saying, put me on your list, and you'll get a periodic update about what's happening, you know, our newsletter or some event that's happening that, that we think people should know about. Anything you feel that we need to cover that we haven't covered in this time? I just want to touch briefly on Hanford's very troubled history. There's a book, speaking of resources, called Plutopia, and it was written by a Maryland history professor from the University of Maryland. And it is a history of both Hanford and its sister facility in the Soviet Union called Mayak. And it really also around the two cities, the city of Richland, which is the city closest to the Hanford site and the city of Oysersk next to Mayak, which is still a secret city, by the way. 
you can't get into that city. Both histories are concurrently horrible. They just release so many radionuclides into the environment. They had so many accidents, all of them classified, covered up. Lots of victims were created, workers, downwinders, farmers in the area, in both sites. And in both cases, the governments of the United States and of the Soviet Union created little utopias in Richland and in Oisersk to attract workers to come there. So they got very good wages, good benefits, good housing, and they were in bubbles, right? Uh, and if you behaved, you could work there. And if you didn't behave, you were marched off the site. So I bring that up because anyone who's really interested in the history of Hanford needs to read this book. And she documents in there the stories that we all know that study Hanford about human experimentation with prisoners at the Walla Walla Federal Prison by irradiating their testicles. People can't forget the crimes that have happened at the Hanford site, the Green Run, which was the deliberate release of huge amounts of iodine-131 to the communities, again, classified, secret, led to, I'm sure, a lot of injuries and illnesses in the area. So there's a huge downwinder impact that people are complaining of and, and have taken to court, and a lot of those cases have been settled at this point. But we're still in the middle of Hanford, so it's not over. We've got another 40 years, at least, of isolation of this stuff. I hesitate to use the word cleanup because they're not really cleaning it up. They're collecting it, they're isolating it, and they're securing it, which is good, and it's better than where it is now. But we'll, we'll still be saddled as a race, as a human race, with these problems and contaminants for the foreseeable future. So that's one thing I just want to touch on is that we've got a very troubled history and a very troubled future in front of us. And it doesn't get the attention it deserves. It's not the only site out there, but it's one of the worst here in the United States for sure. Tom, I want to thank you for the work that you have been doing for so many years on behalf of not just people in the Pacific Northwest, but people all around the world, because this stuff travels. We never know where it's going to end up. And I specifically want to thank you for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. My honor. Thank you very much. Tom Carpenter of Hanford Challenge. We'll have a link up to his website on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 293. I'm still recovering from bronchitis, so we'll have all of our regular features next week. But for now, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 31st, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from Forbes, Asahi, Law 360, Cambridge.org, 4-traders.com, timberexecs.co.uk, nnken.iee.or.jp, Reuters, BBC Business, Euractive.com, nuclear-news.net, Weinberg Foundation, theecologist.org, ipcc.ch, sciencedirect.com, Herald Scotland, news.japan.com, arayanews.com, worldenergynews.com, rt.com, with my gratitude to European correspondent Sean McGee for stepping in on the news this week. Thanks also to energy healer Barbara Robbins, who contributed a healing component which has been running in the background of the show. It's called Emerging from Catastrophe, and a link to her work so that you can run this on your own for free will be up on the website. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, 
reminding you that nuclear waste is forever, which means there's no way nuclear energy is clean, green, or sustainable. Consider that your nuclear wake-up call, and now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.